Gospel of John, John's Gospel, chapter 13. A couple of things that I kind of wanted to mention by, kind of by way of introduction this evening. Um, I don't know, I suppose it's been a little more than a year now that we have been uh, trying to celebrate uh, the Lord's table, communion, uh, more consistently, more regularly. Uh, we're, uh, we're trying to keep that on our schedule uh, on a monthly basis. Um, it, is, it is not exactly our uh, church tradition or custom, uh, but m- most all of us know of churches where they do this every, every time they gather, every time they come together uh, to worship, they are partaking uh, of the bread and the cup. And uh, some people, I had a, a professor in Bible college that uh, was from a free Methodist background, and it was more a, uh, they, were, they were holiness in doctrine, and, uh, but it was more high church uh, tradition, uh, more liturgical. And uh, he was accustomed to having uh, the Lord's Supper every week, uh, they would have the bread and the cup. And I remember talking about this in class uh, when I was in college and kind of debating and, you know, the merits or not uh, of having the Lord's Supper uh, more often. Um, You know, during the era in which I grew up and what most of you I'm sure are familiar with is that we have, we would have communion on a quarterly basis, which usually worked out to about every fifth Sunday. So every time you had a month with five Sundays on it, on the fifth Sunday, you would have uh, a communion service. And that usually works out to about four times a year. So why do it more often? I told my Bible college professor, I said, well, you know, isn't it a danger that we do something too frequently uh, that it loses its meaning, it loses its significance? I suppose that's a that's a possibility. It could, it could. Uh, but you know, his response to me was interesting. He said, "Do you refrain uh, from kissing your wife very often because you're afraid that it will get to be too common or lose its meaning?" Now, same thing. It it could, it could. But it generally has about the amount of meaning that we put into it. The Lord's Supper, not the kissing. Well, the kissing too, but... So I, this, kind of, this idea had been on my mind for a while, and so a couple of years back, I talked to the church board, and I said, maybe, you know, would it be okay if we try this, and let's do it every, let's try to do it every month, and we'll do it the last Sunday of each month, and just be very, very consistent, and make it a part of our, our regular uh, routine of services, and I, I have been thankful for it. Um, if it is a means of grace... Uh, and I need grace, and you need grace, then uh, God help us that as we receive it, as we partake of it, uh, that it ministers grace to our hearts. Others have said it's food for the journey, and, and we need to eat often.
and, and regularly, to have our, not just our bodies, our physical bodies nourished, but our souls nourished. And one of the interesting things about the communion service, the Lord's Supper, is that it is one of the few times that we engage all of our senses in worship. The hearing, the seeing, the touching, the smelling, and the tasting. We are fully engaging our whole bodies in worship and in receiving. And so, friends, you, as we hear from the Scriptures and then in a few moments we uh, partake of the bread and the cup, um, I want to encourage you to, uh, to think about the meaning and think about uh, what is reflected in all of this and uh, just to encourage you, it, it will have about the amount of meaning to you personally that you invest into it. And one of the things that, that concerned me, though, uh, as, a, as a pastor, particularly as a preacher, you know, it's, it's part of my role uh, to stand up here several times a week and, and have something to say that hopefully is, is worthwhile and is worth your time. I remember hearing one preacher say he, it always surprised him to stand up in front of, a, a, of an audience and see that there were actually people there who had come to hear what he had to say. And uh, the more you think about it, the more I think about it, and, and I think about that happening not just week after week, but year after year. Some of you, you people, bless your hearts, you've been... You've been listening to me for quite some time, and uh, uh, I'm thankful that God gives us a book that's inexhaustible. Uh, we never run out of material, and uh, God helps us. He continues feeding our souls. But one of the things that concerned me about this is how many good sermons can you come up with about the Lord's Supper? How many ways is there to to present it from the Scripture? How many things, how many different ideas can you talk about it? Uh, different ways can you talk about it? And so, you know, I'm always trying to write things down so that I remember I have a file in my office. It's a pretty thick file by now that's uh, simply labeled Sermon Seeds. And it's, it's nothing but little, just full of little notes and little ideas th that I can draw from when I'm kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel, so to speak. And here a little while back, I was thinking about this idea. Jesus said when he uh, gave the, the, the disciples the bread and the cup, and he told them, do this often in remembrance of me. It was to remind them of Jesus' death and the fact that he promised he was coming back again. And I was wondering about this question, what else would I remember from, from that time? Not to, not to take uh, attention away from Jesus and away from remembering Him, because ultimately He's the foundation of it all, to remember Christ and to remember His sacrifice. But surely there are other things uh, that happened that would be impressed upon our memories. And one of those things, not what I'm going to talk about tonight, but just to give you an, an example if I could figure out a way to talk about this, I would love to. One of the things that, that one of the gospel writers points out is that they sang a hymn together. 
when they were gathered in the upper room. And before they left, they sang a hymn together. And I thought, wow, what would it have been like to sing a hymn with Jesus leading? And I, I don't know about you, maybe, maybe you, are, you don't think about things like that, or maybe music may not touch your heart the way it does mine, and that's okay, the people are different, but, but music is very, it works on me very easily. And so I, th- I remember picking that up and thinking, wow, that must have been something to, to, uh, to sing along a hymn with Jesus. No, no, their, their music and their singing would have been very different than ours, and that's okay. But still, I think it would have been neat. It would have been cool. I think I would have remembered that. You see, details of, of the past are impressed upon our consciousness in such a way that, that we remember. You know, normal, everyday life just kind of passes us by, and we don't even remember the details but every once in a while, certain things happen, and you remember, you know, exactly where you were and what you were doing. Those of you that live around this area of Oklahoma City a number of years back, what was it, like the late 90s or maybe the mid-90s when uh, the bombing of the federal building downtown, I'm sure most of you can remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when that took place. If, if not that, you think back to 9-11. Uh, I, I remember 9-11 uh, was a 2001. I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when that took place. Those kinds of things, the details get impressed upon our memory. It happens with trauma, with really bad things, but it also happens with good things, with, with beautiful things. And they are just so imprinted on our memory that we think, wow. I, I will always remember this, or I don't want to forget this. And one of the things that I think is most beautiful about what took place uh, at, uh, uh, at the upper room as part of the whole scenario of the Last Supper of Jesus breaking the bread and offering it to the disciples and passing around the cup is this uh, scenario where Jesus gets up from the table and wraps a towel around his waist, and goes to, it seems to be, first of all, to Peter, and kneels down, beginning with Peter, and in turn, each one, he washes the feet of the disciples. Now, I think even now, most of us would probably be uncomfortable to have somebody else wash our feet. Um, there are still churches where they have that, they have that as kind of a ceremony, a ritual. Um, most of us would be uncomfortable with that. But to think about Jesus, and I, I want to point out a few things about this story and tell you why I think it is such a beautiful part of the story uh, that we would remember, and really to try to connect this idea. We've been talking about the beauty of holiness, and the beauty of holiness is the beauty of Jesus. It is the beauty of Christ. And you and I, in our pursuit of holiness, what we are pursuing is Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. Let's read the Scriptures, John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, 
when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. In fact, in the, the original, the way that that is stated is there's almost a repetition. You, you will never, not ever, wash my feet. In other words, Peter is saying, you are my Lord, my rabbi, my teacher. You are not going to stoop to the level of this menial task. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have no part of me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Lord, if that's what that means, then I'm all in. I'm all in, head to toe. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I want to point out to you, first of all, from these verses, the awareness of Jesus. John, the writer, introduces this chapter by mentioning certain things, certain facts that Jesus was aware of at this time. One, he was aware that his hour had come. If you are familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that throughout the, the writing, Jesus refers to, or the writer refers to, this moment called the hour his hour. In fact, the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed, we read about in John chapter 2 oh, at the wedding of Cana in Galilee where he turned the water into wine. And you remember how that story goes when Mary, Jesus' mother, comes to him and says they, they've run out of wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. And there are several repetitions of that phrase, the hour, uh, throughout. You find it in chapter 7, verse 30, uh, then chapter 8, verse 20, and also a number of times in chapter 12. And what that is referring to is the time uh, that Jesus is going to carry his cross up to Calvary and there lay his life down as the final sacrifice for sin. 
And so he is, he is aware here. He's not, this is not something that is coming upon Jesus as a surprise. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And so he says he, he knows that his hour has come to depart out of the world. Also, another thing that he is aware of is his fullness or the completeness of his love for his followers. His love for his own was complete. Notice here it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Now that phrase, having loved them to the end, is, is not just meaning that he loved them his whole life until he died, or he loved them up to this moment. But the word there, loved to the end, is the word teleos. It's the word for uh, for completion, or in some places it's translated as perfection. It means he loved them to the uttermost. His love had been completely poured out upon them. The NIV version uh, of the Bible reads this way, he now showed them the full extent of his love. His love for his own was complete. He also was aware of the authority that had been invested in him by God the Father. The authority. Now, this is interesting because this is prior to uh, his death on the cross and prior to his resurrection. Uh, but Jesus here has the knowledge that God has already given all authority into his hands. Verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He is also aware of his destiny. His destiny. So... Let me just put a few of these ideas together. He's aware of his authority. He's aware of his fullness of love, his complete love. He hadn't, he hadn't left anything out. He had poured out everything of himself for the love of his followers, his disciples. He's aware of his destiny, that he's returning to the Father so with all of this knowledge and with all of this understanding, what does Jesus do? Having come to this awareness, what did he do? Well, he washed feet. He washed feet. He was servile. That's not a word we use real often, servile. Um, but servile means having or showing an excessive willingness to serve or please others. An excessive willingness to serve or please others. So think about this. Here is the sinless Son of God, and He is aware that his destiny is approaching and he is aware that his father has given all things into his hand, all authority, all power. And what does he do with that? What do most humans do with authority, with power? Most abuse it, exactly. Most abuse their power and their authority. But what Jesus did, combining that fullness of love for his followers on the one hand with the authority, the power from God on the other hand, 
he washed feet. He literally took the role of a slave. I did a little bit of studying on this this past week and found I didn't realize this, but Jewish servants did not wash their master's feet. Though a Gentile slave, a non-Jewish slave, might have fulfilled that role. It was a menial task, and yet Jesus willingly took it on, sometimes as a special mark of affection. A host or a hostess might wash a guest's feet, but it was not standard, standard operating procedure in most homes. In some circles, such as Jesus and his disciples, the role of washing feet would have fallen to the one who was the lowest on the social strata. And you remember perhaps some of the details of this story. You know that right around the same time frame, the disciples had been arguing and bickering with one another over who is going to be the greatest in, in Jesus' kingdom. Who's going to be the greatest? And one of their, their mothers came to Jesus and said, Lord, I, I have a favor to ask you. Well, what do you want to ask me? When you come... Lord, into your kingdom, let my, my two sons, let one of them sit on your right hand and one on your left hand. In other words, would you, just, would you let them have the two favored positions of authority? And Jesus said, well, that's not mine to grant. So in this group, nobody wants to admit to being the lowest on the social scale. Nobody wants to stoop to wash feet as would traditionally have been done when they came in from the outside and they, they wore sandals and their feet are dirty and dusty and, and it would be somebody's role to wash feet. And, and that basin and that towel gets conspic conspicuously ignored. And yet Jesus did it. Edersheim, a, a German scholar, I believe, in his writing, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, points out that the towel with which Jesus girded himself was the common mark of a slave by whom the service of foot washing was ordinarily performed. And so Jesus, coming to this knowledge of authority and love, took it upon himself. It was a symbolic action. A symbolic action. You remember another place in Scripture that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, asked Jesus, why, or, or rather ask the disciples, why doesn't your master wash his hands before he eats? I had never, ever thought of this before until I was reading and studying this just this week. They took this normal, ordinary ritual of the hand-washing. It, it, it was a self... And it's not like the same reason you and I wash our hands today before we eat. We do it just because we want to have clean hands when we eat. But then it was a, it was a tradition of the elders, a religious, kind of a religious uh, outward external demonstration uh, th that was put on usually by the head of the company, the, the leader of the company. And here Jesus turned that ritual around and changed it into a foot washing. That ceremony that was to be undertaken as the leader to demonstrate their ritual purity and their ritual cleanliness, Jesus, rather than submitting to that, 
put a towel of a slave around his waist and knelt to wash the disciples' feet. In verse 10 of the scripture lesson, Jesus says this, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Some have taken those words to refer to the sins of the saved. That is, you are clean, you have received salvation, you don't need salvation all over again. You just need the periodic cleansing and forgiveness of your routine sins. I don't believe that's what Jesus was talking about. I believe what it means is the regular commitment of our lives to the service of love after the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he, he said, I'm giving you this as an example that you, you are clean. Now follow my example and commit yourself to the service of love to people. Also, one of the things that is especially notable about this act of Jesus is that it was a service without bias. A service without bias. Notice again verses 10 and 11. Jesus said, you are clean, but not every one of you is clean. Verse 11 says, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but I, I have thought of it a number of times, and it stirs me every time I think of it, that Judas Iscariot, the one who was to betray Jesus into the hands uh, of those who would crucify him, got his feet washed alongside of everybody else. Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God with authority, with power, took that towel and he knelt down and he washed Peter's feet. Peter, who was so impetuous and so quick to speak, but yet who was very sincere in his love and service of Jesus. He washed Thomas's feet, who was a doubter. He washed the feet of John, who is known as the beloved disciple, that one that Jesus loved. And then right along with all of those, he washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. Service without bias. So, friends, I see in this the beauty of holiness in Jesus and also the beauty of holiness that can be in us, in you and in I. I'm taking some liberties here, uh, some interpretive liberties, but I think it's okay because I'm telling you I'm doing that. And I'm I'm drawing some parallels that are not explicit in this scripture, but I believe are suggested. We began by reading how Jesus' love for his disciples was complete. He loved them to the end. He loved them fully. And friends, in holiness, this is the kind of love that we are called on with which to love God. When the religious leaders, the the lawyers came and asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of the law? He said, the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
and your neighbor as yourself. We are called, the love with which Jesus loved his disciples is the love that we are called to love God with. A love that is complete, a love that is total, a love that is without rival. Also, we read there that Jesus was given authority authority. Now, I understand that there's really no parallel to this in the life of the Christian. We don't have the kind of authority that Jesus had. But when I was thinking about this idea, what is it that comes with authority? Well, what often comes with authority is freedom or or liberty. You know, the person with the authority is the person who has the freedom or the liberty to call the shots. And what we find as Christians, as believers, is that we have great freedom and liberty in knowing Jesus. In fact, I think often we have very little grasp on the awesome liberty of the Christian, the freedom of the Christian. I want to be very careful here not to communicate the wrong idea. But really, Acts chapter 15, verse 29, gives us the only official restrictions given by early church leadership. You know, our, our, churches, our, our church has a, a manual about that thick. And I mean, it's, it's not full, it's not rules on every page, but it's, it's got some guidelines in it that it suggests to us, here's what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to live your life as a Nazarene, and here's how you're not supposed to live your life as a Nazarene. And other, uh, other churches, other denominations do the same thing to a, a greater or lesser degree. What did the early church do? Well, this is very interesting. Acts chapter 15, verse 29 um, Well, back up to verse 27. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you, it seemed good to us, this is verse 28, it has seemed good to us, to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. That's a pretty short list, isn't it? So outside of this, the, there are minimal official requirements. You say, Pastor, what are you saying? I'm, I'm not advocating a life of licentiousness. I think most of you know me well enough by now to know that. I'm not advocating or, or saying that you know, it's, it's a free-for-all. We can, we can do what we want. We can live the way we want to. But what I do, I am saying we have more freedom and more liberty in Christ than we really understand. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, said, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. So what do we do with that freedom, that liberty? Well, we are to understand that the, the liberty, the freedom we have is not to be an unbridled freedom or a liberty that leads to licentiousness, but our liberty and our love combined ought to lead us to service. Romans chapter 14, 
verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, but by what you eat do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot there that we could talk about a lot longer time than what we're taking, but we'll try, we won't do that. What I'm trying to tell you this evening, friends, is simply this, that love plus liberty equals what? Love plus liberty equals sacrificial service. Sacrificial service. This is what Jesus shows us in this passage. It is the beauty of holiness. It is the beauty of holiness that we see in Jesus. And I believe that it is the beauty that God wants to see in us. I'm coming to a conclusion here. Uh, But let me just remind you, you know, we often say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So when we think beauty, beautiful, who, who are we trying to please? Who are we trying to please? If you will permit me to use my imagination, I can imagine God stepping occasionally to the railings of the balcony of heaven and looking over on this earth and seeing some of his choice children and choice saints on this earth and speaking to the angels and saying to them, do you smell that? Do you hear that? You know, this idea of God smelling or savoring our worship, the first time it's mentioned is in Genesis Um, and I, and I really am coming to an end, okay? So I'm, I'm almost done. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. Noah and his family have been through the flood, and, and uh, they have come off of the ark. And then uh, verse 20 of Genesis 8. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. He said, do you smell that? That's, that's the smell. That's the odor of someone and their worship and their offering up to me. I can imagine God doing something similar when Abraham took his son, his only son Isaac, up to the top of the mountain and there willingly laid him down as a sacrifice simply because God asked him to do it. And I can imagine God saying to one of the angels, look what he's doing. Do you see what he's doing? Do you smell that? I tried to think of numerous other examples. I thought of the Syrophoenician woman that came to Jesus and and, uh, asked that her little daughter might be healed. And Jesus said to this woman, to this Gentile woman, a non-Jewish person, Jesus came to the Jews and he told this woman, it's not right to give the food to the dogs. That woman with her faith said, oh, but even... Even the little dogs under the table get to eat from the scraps that the children drop. And Jesus said, oh, for this saying, you can go your way. 
your child has been healed. And I can imagine in those kinds of moments, God stepping and looking over the railings of the balcony of heaven and saying, did you hear that? Did you see that? And it just stirs in my heart God being pleased with his children when they are demonstrating the kind of beauty that Jesus himself showed. When we have love and we have liberty, but we, don't, we, we demonstrate that through sacrificial service. We sing the song, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, Rejoice. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Beauty in the eye of the beholder. I believe Jesus shows us this beauty of holiness, love, and authority that results in sacrificial service. And I believe when, this, when we follow this example, that we're saying, I'm, I'm not trying to please anybody but God that God looks down on us and says, do you, did you see that? Did you hear that? Do you smell that, that worship, that service? And quite honestly, I believe that it is beautiful in the sight of God, beautiful in the sight of God. And may God help us to pursue the beauty of Christ the beauty of Jesus.